We return once again this evening to the book of Revelation. We have seen the Lion of Judah is the worthy one who has now come into the very throne room of God and is revealed to be the overcomer. He who was overcome as a slain lamb now standing and qualified to receive the scroll from the right hand of God and to administer the purposes of God's decree through the course of our present period of redemptive history between the first and second comings of Christ. The administration of this decree, of this government, is symbolized by the breaking of seven seals that open and then unfurl the scroll so that its content written on both the back and the front and can be, as it were, read into the course of history. So let's reorient ourselves to Revelation chapter 6, reading from verses 1 through 8, which describe in apocalyptic manner the four horsemen who are seen to bring tribulation in the age in which we live, each of these four horsemen representing a peculiar kind of pressure and challenge to the church of Jesus Christ. Then I saw when the Lamb broke the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice, Come, I looked and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And another red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked and behold a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked and behold an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. So here we see the manifestation symbolically of false religion, of war, economic injustice, pestilence. As we saw in previous studies, These are terms drawn from the Old Testament, vocabulary describing God's punishment upon idolatry. We took opportunity to make application from our last study of this text, where we are to understand the concept of evil in the sense of both moral wrong and the common curse under which we live. We live not only with the blessings of common grace, but also a common curse, for we live in a fallen world 
that is subject to death due to the intrusion of sin. And all of this is under the sovereignty of King Jesus and all of the events of history, including the activity of the adversary, Satan, as we had opportunity to be reminded of Martin Luther saying, Satan is God's devil. So that we know there is purpose, even in the midst of all of what appears to be traumatic and chaotic and disruptive and painful, there is purpose for suffering. There is purpose even in injustice and even in death itself. And so therefore we are encouraged to persevere and to keep that eternal perspective and to endure. We also learn that as Christians we're not exempted from these phenomenon of tribulation of the riding of the four horsemen. We're not exempted from death and its intrusive fracturing and, and breaking of the unity that is constituted of life. War, economic disparity, natural catastrophe, disease, these things of the common curse. We're not taken away from such things, but we are given an understanding of the meaning of such things. For we interpret these phenomena in the light of the word of God. And we know and understand that history as it unfolds concerns the foundational enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we understand that the adversary, the evil one, is in enmity with the seed of the woman. And of course that has particular redemptive significance for us, for we know that Jesus is indeed the particular seed of the woman, and we in Christ Jesus are also targeted of the evil one, for we are that redeemed seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman can also be understood in the more, it could be also understood in the more first creation way, in the fact that those born of the woman are under the enmity of the evil one. Satan hates people, whether they be redeemed or not. And Satan particularly hates women, if I might say that. The enmity between you and your seed and Satan's seed. There's an enmity that Satan has that brings disruption to the created ordin- creation ordinances, as we saw this morning, that are particularly, particularly victimizing of women. But that's for another study, another consideration. Satan is the adversary, and he is at work, even in all of these phenomenon of natural catastrophes and so forth and so on. And Satan works in these very common phenomenon of disruptions with a particular intent upon bringing opposition to the church. So we find that part of the relief in our salvation that is described, for example, in chapter 7 that we read last time is that the Lord takes away the hunger and the poverty of God's people. Those are two things common to all 
in the common curse. And yet, these are things which are particularly pressing upon the people of God that are relieved in the saving grace of God. Brethren, you need to understand that the purposes of God in history concern you, the church. You see, the purposes of God in history are being directed toward the revelation of the sons of God and the glory of the resurrection so that Christ would be eternally glorified in your salvation. Take a look around. Seriously. You're the most important people in the world. Tell me that doesn't require faith to utter. You're the most important people in the world. You're the most important people in the pages of history. And what you do with this gospel is the most important thing that you do in the pages of your personal history. The first four seals of the horsemen cover the entire epoch our redemptive history from the first to the second coming. They, they bring us up to the very final judgment at the end of the age, which is depicted in the sixth seal. But our concerns are with the fifth seal tonight that give us a vantage point from heaven and show us the activity of the saints who have died and who are now in their disembodied state. It's one of the things I pray we'll get an appreciation for John and his writing and the ministry of Christ to us by his spirit who has given John this revelation, is that when we are compelled to take a very sober look at the realities of life in this present age on earth, it's not too many verses that we go through before we get an opportunity to look into the glories of heaven. The realities of heaven now, and of course that which is yet to be disclosed upon the resurrection and the return of Christ. So we read from chapter 6, verse 9, verse 11. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. So we have seen the church as it is depicted on the earth. It is lampstands, and Christ is in the midst of the lampstands. And the church on earth is responsible to be a temple, upholding the worship of God, shining the light of the gospel, making witness in the darkness, and must continue to do that that on the battlefield in which there is threat of compromise emerging from within the church and threat of succumbing to the seduction of the world on the one hand or the persecution of the world on the other hand that presses upon the church from outside. And it's the four horsemen 
who describe the landscape of the battlefield in which the church is called to be faithful as the church, Christ in her midst. And then in chapter 6, verse 9 and 11, we see the church in heaven. And here it is identified particularly with the altar. And we hear the saints in heaven praying. Now, there'll be more perspective that John gives to us in later glimpses of glory because he wants us in no small measure to be comforted by the passing of those who have gone before us. So let's look, first of all, tonight at verse 9, that John sees Christians in the disembodied state. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw beneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they maintained. The fifth seal is a disclosure of the decree of God concerning the Christians who have died. And John sees them, and there they are beneath the altar, which tells us that we are now once again in that heavenly throne room, in that temple where Jesus Christ is enthroned and where he reigns. In the Old Testament, the golden altar was placed near the Holy of Holies. It was to be cleansed once a year by the blood ministered upon it by the high priest. And only incense was to be burned upon that altar, and that incense was to be burned daily. No other offerings were allowed to be made on that particular altar. We've already seen in chapter 5 and verse 8 of Revelation that the prayers of the saints are seen in the heavenly temple depicted by the incense that rises in that temple. So we're to understand that our prayers, our worship, our song rises into heaven and joins with these who are beneath the altar whose prayers, our prayers, as we'll see, is taken up by the angel with censers to offer in worship. And these prayers of the saints in the altar become a very significant motif in the book of Revelation because it is on the occasion of these prayers that God instigates an advancement, as it were, in the kingdom of God on earth so that we recognize that there is this dynamic at work that as the church prays, as the voices from beneath the altar cry out, that often is seen in Revelation immediately preceding a new enactment of the unleashing of judgment upon the earth. That these souls are beneath and not on top of the altar is said by some to depict their safety at this point. They're in a place of privilege. They're in a place of protection. They're beneath the altar. They're safe. They're secure. They had been slain, but now they're safe. We're looking at humans. We're not looking at angels. Souls 
describes that immaterial aspect of our humanity. We are psycho, soulish, somatic, bodily beings. And these who are those who have been slain, they've undergone physical death. Physical death is a separation of the soul from the body. The body without the spirit is dead, James tells us in James 2.26. The Christian's body is said to sleep in the dust until the resurrection, but the Christian's soul is immediately in the presence of Christ and as such continues to have personal identity. In the transfiguration, the apostles not only recognize the personal identity of Jesus, they also recognize the personal identity of Moses and Elijah. And as such, the soul also has self-consciousness. There is an awareness of one's self and an awareness of other souls together. So that here is an activity which is personal, in their crying out, and it is corporate in that they are crying out together. And John hears them praying. They're identified as those who had been slain. They previously have died, but they're now alive. This is the first resurrection. Why were they slain? Because of the word of God. And because they held on to, they maintained, they kept their faith grip on and gave their testimony to Jesus Christ. We've seen this before, this word of God and testimony Back in chapter 1 and verse 9 of Revelation, at the very beginning, John introduces himself and says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So these are the reasons why John has been exiled to the island of Patmos. And right away he identifies with us, the readers, the church to which this letter is sent. And he identifies with us and says, we have koinonia together. We have fellowship together. We are fellow partakers together. He's not talking about let's hang out together on Friday night. We often use the word fellowship as a synonym to socializing. What he's talking about is a shared participation of a common life that we have in Christ Jesus, a life that is lived in a very specific way in this very specific time and place of redemptive history. So whatever John is, that's what we are, because he calls himself our fellow partaker. Partaker of what? Tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance. Now John's particular experience of this tribulation was he's exiled. 
He's in prison on the island of Patmos. That is his particular experience of this tribulation for Christ. What is the common denominator that identifies us with John is not that we too must inevitably go to prison. What is the common denominator is our word of God defined testimony. Whatever we experience of tribulation, the kingdom, and perseverance, it's because of the word of God and because of our testimony to Jesus Christ. And this word testimony, as you've heard before, is a key term in the book of Revelation. It can be translated witness. And it is integrally related to the necessity and to what is involved in overcoming. Your witness is absolutely integral to your overcoming. Don't witness, you won't overcome. You have to get in the fight. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11, and they overcame him, Because of the blood of the Lamb, notice, because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Drop down to verse 17. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. That word testimony is this word witness. Notice it is integrally related to overcoming. And interestingly, this word testimony, witness, is also the same word for martyr. The Greek is martus in the noun, marturia, the verb. And when you take the Greek letters and transliterate them into English letters, you get an English word, martyr. But the translation of that term, martyr, that word translated is testimony, witness, testify. So John has common fellowship with us in whatever providential experience God brings us to as his church bearing worship and witness in this warfare as we go through the wilderness waiting for Christ to return. However it is that we encounter the providential phenomenon of the four horsemen John says the thing that really identifies us together is our overcoming through the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ that we maintain and hold. So how do we understand when we come back to verse 9 of chapter 6 what it means for these who have been slain? If they were slain 
because of their martyria, because of their testimony, well, doesn't that mean that they were therefore actually martyred? Well, we see another depiction of these disembodied saints in chapter 20. If you turn there to to verse 4. And then I saw thrones and they who sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls hmm, of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehand and on their hand And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So here John sees these same souls. And they were slain. They were beheaded. But now they're alive. And now he sees them on the thrones. They're reigning on the thrones, but he hears them praying from the altar. And the common identifier of these souls in both chapter 6, verse 9, and here in 20, verse 4, is their identification with the word of God and with the testimony of Jesus. And in this instance, John further elaborates their identity, describing them as those who have not succumbed to the false worship of the beast or to the false doctrine in their thinking, and in their activity, this mark on the head and the mark on their hands. Now this inclination to to see this disembodied corpus of souls as those who have been beheaded, as those who are slain, the language of sacrificial death, it it played into a tradition in the early church that used, to mar- that used to celebrate church martyrs. Yeah, they had their celebrities back then too, I guess. Oh, for a guitar. They celebrated what was called All Saints Day in which they honored the death of martyrs. Well, eventually, the martyr's part fell off and just turned into a celebration of death. And you are already seeing the accoutrements of Halloween in local stores. It's two months away. And we're already seeing the pictures of ghouls and goblins and witches and all of that. So we ask the question in Revelation 6 and again in Revelation 20, are these only actual martyrs, are these only Christians who have actually been killed because of their testimony, because of their 
Christian identity, that they were actually beheaded in the sense of actually being martyred, uh, is that the only identifier of these who are beneath the altar? My answer is no and yes. No, because the vocabulary word slain is indeed a specific term of sacrificial offering, but it identifies these beneath the altar altar, with the lamb who was slain. Same term. And that speaks of a specific kind of death. Again, notice in chapter 5 where this vocabulary has been seen previously. Chapter 5, verse 6, I saw between the throne... With the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Verse 9, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book to break its seals, for you were slain, and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And verse 12, Worthy is a lamb that was slain to receive power and riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. So this is a very specific kind of death. This is a lamb-like death. This is a death that is the expression of a worshipful service. It is the method by which the lion has overcome. And again, we're seeing the emphasis on this overcoming. So this term identifies these under the altar most specifically with the slain lamb. If you turn to Romans chapter 8, a text with which you're familiar, reading at verse 36, for just as it is written for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slain, slaughters, same term. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer, overcome through him who loved us. So here our text would encourage us to believe that the overcomers who have been slaughtered or slain are lamb-like in both their lives and in their deaths, so that this overcoming is not limited only to those who were physically martyred, but is a description of all true believers. It's a description of disciples, brethren, and that's the key to our understanding, both overcoming and the nature of the death that is died by the Christian Discipleship is the key. If you turn back to Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 16, reading at verse 24 to verse 26, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, whoever loses his life For my sake, we'll find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? This summons to discipleship is a summons 
to cross-bearing, to self-denial of life lived in and for this present age. It is a call to die. And in union with Christ, as depicted in our baptism, we have died with Christ, in Christ. And we are risen with Christ, in Christ. And the reality of that death-to-life dynamic is played out in the ongoing expression of our discipleship as we follow Christ, learning to deny ourselves to pick up our cross daily. And as Paul says, I die daily. It's a death, a particular kind of death, a lamb-like death, a following of Christ even in the midst of an opposition in which we're like lambs being slaughtered all day long. It's death to the life that is lived for the things of this age. It's death to the sake call himself. It's, it's the death by which we actually find life, one's soul, life, that is lived in the dynamic and power of the age to come. And that's the life that John sees that characterizes those beneath the altar, the souls of those who have died. So, are those only those who have been physically martyred for Christ? I say no. I, I, I believe that these souls beneath the altar are, are disciples of Christ who have lived and died in the purpose of following Christ for the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. They are witnesses. Martyrao. They are witnesses. But are they, in fact, those who have been physically martyred for Christ? And on that part, I say, yeah, they're there, sure. (laughs) Yes. I have a picture of two of them in the room over there. Yeah, they're there. And in my mind's eye, I see them. But that is the nature of the calling that God gave to them in their pursuit of their discipleship to Jesus Christ. For John, it was imprisonment. By that time, church history tells us most of the other disciples had already been physically killed. But John lives to an old age. Are there those there who live to an old age but are faithful, holding and maintaining the testimony of Christ in obedience to the word of God. Yes, they're there. You might see the faces of some who finished and crossed the finish line, not being martyred, but enduring to the end. And then there are those who have been martyred. And they're there too. But we're not somehow to elevate them to some special status of sainthood No, they're disciples. What they were brought to do in the course of their obedience to Christ is in essence what we sign up for when we are following Jesus Christ. So yes, here we see the disciples in the disembodied state. Secondly, this evening, John hears Christians pleading for vindication, verse 10, and they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord? Holy and true, 
will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now we heard this language, someone proclaiming with a loud voice in chapter 5 and verse 2, which is the voice of the angel. It's the same vocabulary, a mega sound, a loud voice. But here, John hears cries. It could be translated screams. And it's coming from the altar proximate to the throne. And it's a question, a perennial question of theodicy. It's a question, Lord, how long? When will God execute justice? When? Will there be punishment executed upon wrongdoers? When will the people of God be vindicated as those who have lived by faith, as the righteous who live by faith? In Habakkuk, you're familiar, this was the opening question in the prophet Habakkuk. The oracle which Habakkuk, the prophet, saw, chapter 1, verse 2, How long, O Lord, Will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry to you, violence, and yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? How long? Look at the wickedness. Why? These are profound, pathetic questions. And they resonate throughout the pages of Scripture for the church to ask in her prayers on earth, and it's the prayer that is being asked by the church in heaven. You remember that Habakkuk receives the answer to this question in chapter 2, verse 3, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come and it will not delay. What is that? Well, in chapter 3, verse 12 and verse 13, in indignation you marched through the earth, in anger you trampled the nations, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. In the outpouring of judgment, is the context in which the people of God are saved. We are saved from judgment and saved often in the context of the outpouring of judgment. And here Habakkuk sees what we understand to be a vision of the second coming of Jesus Christ who returns as a warrior for the destruction of his enemies and the rescue and salvation of his people. This text in Revelation 6 and verse 10, many believe is a citation on John's part from Psalm 79. Psalm 79, reading at verse 10. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight vengeance for the blood of your servants which has been said, which has been shed. The nations are saying, where's your God? We can mock you. We can disdain you. We can make trite of you. We can 
take advantage of you. We can maliciously hurt you and unjustly kill you. Where's your God? What good is it to stand there with humility? And as we've seen in days not too long ago, professing Christians being lined up along a seashore with their beheading executioners standing immediately behind them. I don't know how you can look at that and not say, Lord, how long? Why? In Psalm 79, if you have your Bible still open to that passage, the temple in Jerusalem is being desecrated. The godless are rampaging through the temple. And this is a judgment on Jerusalem that God is visiting because of their covenant infidelity. We ought not to be surprised. The question asked in verse 5, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your, jeal- will your jealousy burn like fire? How long? How long? Will your disciplining judgment upon your people transpire? Godless men are destroying the temple. And so the psalmist pleads, rightly so, in verse 8 and 9, for forgiveness. Remember, don't, don't remember the iniquities against us. Be the God of our salvation. Deliver us, verse 9, and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Peter would have us understand that in the days in which we live, judgment begins in the household of God. And it's a time for us to plead for forgiveness. And it's the same language that John picks up then in Revelation 6 and verse 10. Let it be known among the nations in our sight, vengeance for the blood of your servants, which has been shed. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's an imprecatory prayer. They make us uncomfortable, these imprecatory prayers. It's hard for us to handle. It's a prayer in which the one praying is asking that God would execute justice upon God's enemies, that they would be rightly judged and condemned. We say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Didn't Jesus teach us to pray Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. And wasn't it Jesus on the cross who said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And wasn't that the same prayer that we see in Acts 8 with with Stephen and his prayer echoing the same words of Christ's prayer on the cross? We need to be balanced, brethren. We need to understand where we are in our present time of redemptive history and what the purposes of God are in both the outworkings of judgment and salvation. Notice what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 17 and following. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome. You're in a fight. It's how you deal with wickedness. It's how you deal with those who you perceive deserve the wrath of God. And you can recognize that. You are not to execute vengeance. You are not to execute punishment. But you understand and recognize, even as we saw this morning at the end of Romans 1, that those who know the ordinance of God know that those who do such things are worthy of the sentence of death. And that comes to expression in a balanced, humble petition, both from the church on earth and the church in heaven. Notice why it is this prayer is being prayed for your name's sake. So on earth, we overcome by being peacemakers. This is that strategically strange tactic of warfare that is given to us as the sons of God Most High. Does that mean then in heaven we become vengeance takers? No. What is the cause of our zeal? Notice who it is who is addressed. O Lord, holy and true. O Lord, holy and true. These are the characters of the one to whom we petition for justice and for righteousness. It's not a plea for personal vengeance because the blood of the martyrs were shed for the cause of righteousness, not for the cause of self-serving acquisition or self-promotion. It is a plea that falls directly in line with the morality of the third commandment. It is an expression of God's own jealousy for his own name. And as I said, the prayers that come from the altar play a critical role in the book of Revelation. And they're effective for the advancing the Lord's purposes of salvation through judgment. And we'll see in a very interesting alignment of the seals that the next seal that is broken, the sixth seal, is a depiction of final judgment itself, which is the ultimate answer to this prayer. In Revelation chapter 8, we come to verse 3 and verse 5, which at this point is the end of the second cycle. And it sets the third cycle into motion. And notice what it is that kicks off the third cycle. Another angel came and stood at the altar from, these, from where these cries are coming, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, prayers, so that he might add to it the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throng, throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand, then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth, and there followed peals of thunder and sounds of flashes of lightning and an earthquake. The prayers of the saints are instrumental in the unfolding of the purposes of God. I don't want to stop prayer meeting, brethren. God help you. I don't want to stop prayer meeting. 
I don't want to stop worshiping. We are on the wrong track. I mean, the, not only on the wrong track, we're, going, we're heading in the wrong direction if we interpret worship as something that's all about us. On earth we do pray, Father, forgive them. And in heaven the saints pray for the arrival of final judgment. And in both prayers, the hearts of God's people are for the vindication of the God who is holy and true, the God who is righteous and gracious, the God who is just and the only Savior of mankind. Thirdly, tonight, verse 11, John sees Christians comforted until the end. And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Each was given a white robe. This is not their resurrection body, but it is a symbol of the fact that they will indeed inherit as the sons of God the resurrection body and indeed with that body the entire glorified cosmos. These who wear the white robe are the ones who are marked out as the people of God whose inheritance is secure in union with Christ. White, of course, being the color of purity, a whiteness that has been obtained through the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ. It is a sanctity that is characteristic of holiness, preserving, being preserved in holiness and persevering in holiness. In chapter 3 of Revelation, reading at verse 4 and verse 5, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. These we are told in 611 we're we're told to, to rest for a little while longer. To rest for a little while longer. The word rest is a very significant vocabulary word in the Bible because it's a vocabulary word that is associated with the fourth commandment and the Sabbath. And it's a particular word that speaks to the refreshment and the invigorating renewal of life that is part and parcel of the blessing that the Sabbath is designed to give to the people of God. So that in our worship, brethren, on the Lord's Day Sabbath, we taste of this very rest. We taste of this very rest. In chapter 14 of Revelation, looking at verse 12 and verse 13, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Hmm. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. These are those who have persevered. They have endured. Their life has been characterized with a living, obedient faith. 
They have lived in love with Jesus Christ. And they have died. And the angel says, those are the blessed ones. They're blessed. Because now they enter into this this Sabbath refreshment. After their life of effort and labor and deeds and exertion and straining. The athlete, the farmer, the soldier. They're to understand because of their union with Christ, they have not labored in vain. And those labors and works follow and are part of the adornment of the bride as she prepares herself for the banquet. His word, a little while longer. Isn't that nice? It's the answer to the question, how long? A little while longer. Could be the remainder of your life. It's just a little while longer. Getting a little while all the time. Could be the, to the end of this age. Just a little while longer. At the end of Daniel, he was encouraged. But as for you, go your way to the end. And then you will enter into your rest. And rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Go your way to the end. It's just a little while longer. And then you'll rest. Luke 18, 7 and 8. Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. In a very short while. However. When the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on the earth? If you look at 1 Peter, chapter 1 and verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while. If necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. And again in chapter 5 and verse 10 of this same epistle, after you have suffered, For a little while. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen and establish you. We're like the kid in the back seat, you know. Just pull out of the driveway. Dad, are we there yet? No. It's going to be a little while longer. But dad's driving, he knows where he's going, and he'll get there right on time. Momentary, momentary. Light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So how long? How long? It's the question we've been asking through the course of the evening service. Until every last disciple of Jesus Christ is run his race and finished the fish and crossed the finish line. We're told it'll be long enough for all of those under the altar, for their fellow saints, their fellow servants rather, and their brethren to be killed the same way they've been killed. To go the way of the Lamb. 
to be faithful to the word of God and to hold on to the testimony of Jesus Christ and in so doing to be martyrs, to be testifiers, to be witnesses who go through the course of this little while loving not their life even unto death. The Lord knows a number, evidently, until that number of their fellow servants would be completed. The number of God's elect, the number of Christ's sheep, he knows each and every one. And not one will be snatched from the Father's hand, and Jesus will shepherd his entire flock to the eternal spring of the water of life. So John looks at us, and he sees us beleaguered by battle and bewildered, and we're asking, why? How long? And John sees Jesus, and he's enthroned, and he's in our midst of the lampstands. There, in Christ, uniting us with his temple as an earthly temple, Christ the center in the church and on the throne in heaven. And he urges us, even as we were compelled in Sunday school class this morning, get your eyes on Jesus and give yourself to those means of grace where Jesus ministers to you. And then walk with him. Walk through the midst of a warfare. Walk on through the course of the wilderness it's just a little while longer. And others have already gone ahead of you. Others have already, have already gone ahead. And they're already being refreshed. They're already resting. They're already being comforted. And they're waiting for us. And they know in ways that we can only hope to know, but they know it's all worth it. It's all worth it. Jesus will vindicate his name and he will be glorified in the salvation of his people. So see what John sees and see if you can hear what John hears. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who have been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they'd maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our, God, our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and of their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. Even so, come Lord Jesus, amen.